We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to your people. We're thankful for providing for us, for giving us everything that we need. We pray that you relieve us from any anxiousness that we do that tends to crop up in our hearts, Lord. We know that the root of this is a, a distrust in your provision for us. Please forgive us, Lord. Lord, we come before you on this day asking that you heal those who are hurt, those who are experiencing physical distress. Particularly now, we pray for Brad, Wheeler, and Robin as they seek to determine what's going on with Brad and his vertigo. We pray that it's nothing serious, but if it is, Lord, we pray that you give the doctors the ability to, to heal him quickly. We pray for Dirk and Elise in their mourning during this time, Lord. We mourn with them as a, as a church, but let them see that, that you are good in all things, Lord, even in the things that we do not understand. Give them strength and give them hope. Lord, we praise you for the healing that you do indeed give to your people. We're thankful that Fonzo's back is, is much better, Lord. We pray that the treatment that he received continues to work well that the pain does not return. We're thankful that Allison's procedure went well, that you gave the doctors a sure hand there. We pray for safe return for all of those who are traveling during this time, for anybody else that may be out sick. May you heal them, may you give them strength, Lord. We pray for the churches all across this world that are worshiping you on this day, especially those that are in hostile places where they take their very lives into their hands to gather together as you have commanded on your day, Lord. How good we have it here to worship freely. May we never take that for granted. We pray for our brothers and sisters who do not enjoy that privilege. We thank you for their boldness, for their witness that they are coming together as you have commanded your people to do. That they do not forsake the gathering together of the believers, that they're there to encourage one another, even in the midst of very, very trying times. We're thankful for the ministries across this world that you've allowed us to participate in, the missionaries that we support. We pray that you strengthen them during this time. We pray for Tiago and Marta and their mission in Portugal. We pray for their church. May you build it. May you restore it. May you give them new members and young members, members of all ages, Lord. Grow that church and grow the surrounding churches. Help grow the seminary there. May you give us hearts to give to help them complete the renovation that they are seeking to do to where they can store materials without the threat of, of mold or mildew. We pray for APC and the pastors that are being trained there. We're thankful for the hunger that they show. May you bring the resources that are used to feed these pastors that they go back to their flocks and they're able to minister in a, a righteous and holy way to expound upon your word. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We ask that you bless this hour that we have together. May you strengthen me. May you strengthen the ears of the hearers here. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, so if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles there with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter in one moment. So in our, our previous two sermons on the, the book of Exodus, we first saw the plight of the people of Israel and then how the one that was going to become their future leader, Moses, was spared from some gruesome political strategies of Pharaoh. 
Then we moved on into Moses' first personal encounter with God, during which God reveals to Moses his plan. And his plan was to bring the people out of Egypt and back to the land that was promised to their father Abraham. And in doing so, God reveals something to Moses that he had never before revealed to a man. That was his personal covenant name, Yahweh. When the people asked Moses who sent him, that was going to be his response. Yahweh has sent me. This was not any of the other names that the people might have had for a deity or for their God. They would not know this God as El. They would not know him as Adonai. They would not know him as Elohim, but they would know him as Yahweh. And this was signal to them that this God, this God that is bringing them back to the land from Egypt, is a personal God. He's a covenantal God. And he is completely committed to their well-being. He's not a distant deity. He's a personal one. But these people, these people, they still need a leader. They still need a spokesman. And the spokesman needs to serve as a mediator between them and God. And he also has to serve as a mediator between them and Pharaoh. And God has specifically chosen Moses for this task, for this leadership role. Enter Exodus 4. So let's read it together. Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take, take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. 
So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought him to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So when God first called Moses, Moses, he really does display a measure of humility, and he asks a legitimate question. So go back there to meet with me to Exodus 3 and verse 11 and then verse 13. So in verse 11 says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he asks, it's a measure of humility. Who am I? Who am I here? And then he asked that legitimate question. And then again in verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So you've got the humility, then you've got this legitimate question. So Moses displays some, some really understandable reluctance here. And this reluctance continues on to the first verse of chapter 4. So Moses said, Behold, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to my voice because they're going to say, The Lord, the Yahweh did not send you. This personal God, he does not send you. So Moses still has this reluctance here. So God gives Moses this great demonstration of miracles, gives him three, that he is going to allow them to perform, that he is going to allow Moses to perform to confirm this. So Moses is convinced. He sees these miracles. A staff turned to a snake, hand turned leprous and back, Nile turned to blood. Moses is convinced, right? Nope. So this, this particular bit reminds me a bit of some of the miracles that are performed in other places of Scripture and just as a side note, I don't know if you know this, but physical miracles are actually very rare in the Bible. We tend to think that they're not because they, they're the stories that really stick in our minds. But physical miracles are actually really rare in Scripture. And they're almost all concentrated around the time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, or the time of Jesus and the apostles. That's really where the major concentration of all the miracles are. The rest of, the rest of Scripture is really not about miracles, or physical miracles at least. But the miracles, they're, they're offered as a confirmation that the person performing them is sent by the Lord. That's their major purpose. But a very curious thing happens after most of the miracles are performed. Because even despite the miracles that the people see with their own eyes, most of the people who witness the miracles don't actually go on to believe. That's kind of really hard for us to wrap our minds around because, you know, with the cessation of the supernatural gifts that we believe... We don't ever see miracles that are performed by men in our day. So we're inclined to think that really if only some of these great miracles could be performed in our day, then scores of people are going to start to believe. 
But really the evidence from Scripture really isn't, it's not really exactly like that. Because even when Jesus performed these miracles, most of the people didn't believe him. They'd like to see the great signs, but they still didn't believe who he said he was. So hard hearts are going to be hard hearts no matter what evidence is presented to them. That's a bit of a side note, so back to Moses. So I'm not saying that Moses was hard-hearted here, but the fact is the miracles that Moses witnessed, they don't assuage his fears, and they don't cause him to trust God completely right now. Because now he's gone from humility to asking some legitimate questions, and then in verse 10 he starts to make excuses. Moses says, well, I haven't, I haven't been blessed with the gift of gab. Moses hasn't been blessed with the gift of gab, doesn't possess a silver tongue, or as we might say down here in the south, he can't talk good. Well, so what? Right? So what if he can't talk? God has just shown Moses his omnipotence over inanimate objects in the staff, over animate objects, including all animals, based on the serpent, He's shown him his omnipotence over disease by turning a healthy hand leprous. He's shown him his omnipotence over health by turning that leprous hand back healthy. He's shown him his omnipotence over weather, environment, and sustenance by turning the Nile into blood. And then he's implied his omnipotence over death itself because blood was a symbol for death and life, right? So God has shown Moses these powerful things, but Moses' response, well, I can't really talk that good, though. You know, it's, it's kind of head-scratching. So it never really seems to cross Moses' mind that God can really turn his stuttering and his lack of eloquence into some powerful tool for God's own purposes. So saints, I'm here to tell you, God can redeem even our own voices and even our own speech for his purposes. God makes this point in an exchange with Moses, similar to the one that he has with Job in the narrative where he just pelt, he's peltering Job with questions, you know. He asks Moses the same thing. Moses... Who made man's mouth? God did. And God will speak for you. He asked Moses to understand this. But even after that, Moses becomes straight up argumentative and obstinate. He goes even further. So God, in response to this, is very gracious to Moses, obviously. So God goes further to provide for his servant. He offers Moses' brother Aaron as a speaker. Okay. So to this, apparently Moses agrees to accept the task after Aaron is offered as a speaker. So after Moses no longer protests to God about his own abilities, he then goes and begins this journey back to Egypt from the land of Midian, where, remember, Moses has been for 40 years. And the first step was asking leave of his father-in-law. So Moses really, he, he no doubt knew the story of his patriarch Jacob, if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob goes and he asks to go back to his country from his father-in-law, Laban. And what does Laban do? Laban does not let him go at all. Moses, probably, he, he knew this story, definitely knew this. And this was likely going through his mind as he has to go back to Jethro and ask Jethro, Jethro, let me take your daughter, let me take my sons and let me leave here. I've been here for 40 years, but let me leave and go back to Egypt with my people. But in God's graciousness, he puts it in Jethro's heart to let him go. Jethro doesn't even hesitate. He actually gives him a departing blessing of peace. So this is good news for Moses. And God speaks to Moses again for telling the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in the next verses, and then the warnings that are going to be issued to Pharaoh. And then we get to verses 24 through 26, which, which begins, The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? What? <laughs> 
Well, so I was, I was actually talking to Hal this week about what a busy week I had, and on top of it all, I still needed to write a sermon. And how uh, one of his remarks said, well, at least you have an easy passage. And I, yeah, mostly, yeah, mostly a very easy passage, except I don't think how I was thinking about verses 24 through 26 here. So because even, you know, conservative evangelical commentators divide on what these verses mean. Uh, and in fact, even the original text itself isn't clear in some places to what antecedent nouns some of the hymn pronouns here apply to. So it's not even exactly completely clear in the Hebrew who some of those hymns are talking about. But I'm going to try my best here. Try my best to draw out what message is being conveyed by this difficult piece of Scripture because all Scripture is here for our benefit, and it, it really is here for a reason. I'm going to do my best to explain that to you. So first of all, I believe that the, the real crux of the issue is that Moses had, had failed to circumcise his son Gershom. Remember, he has a firstborn son named Gershom. And the problem was likely that Moses had failed to circumcise the son. Because in the, the concluding verse of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, this is what the concluding verse of that covenant says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. Very direct, right? It's a very direct command there. Moses was undoubtedly very aware of this covenant commitment to have his sons circumcised. But Moses had failed to do so. And so if you want the blessings of the covenant, you have to keep the provisions of the covenant. If you want the curses of the covenant, you break the covenant. That's pretty, pretty simple. And Moses had not done this. And on top of that, Moses is, has now been commissioned as a leader of God's people. So being commissioned as a leader even makes the commands of God weigh heavier on those that are commanded to lead the people. And Moses had failed in one of these essential com commands, and it nearly cost either his or his son's life. And the other significant reason that this episode is included here is that it reiterates the idea that is presented in verse 23, right above it. So before this episode, verse 23 talks about the death of the firstborn son that is going to come to Pharaoh. And so this is really why this passage is here. And we're going to return to this in just a moment, just to give you a teaser. Okay, we're going to come back to this. But to conclude the summary of the chapter, chapter ends on a very high note. Moses is reunited with Aaron, remember whom he had not seen in a very, very long time. Moses relays God's words to Aaron, and then he and Aaron meet with the people, of, with, the people with Aaron relaying the words to this gathered assembly of at least the elders, probably more than that. And then you get this beautiful, uplifting picture of a united Israel at the end of chapter, at the end of the chapter with verse 31, which I'm going to read again because it's just so uplifting and wonderful. It says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This really drives home the fact that this, this is Yahweh. This is a personal God. He is a covenantal God. He has seen our affliction. And so they bow their heads and they worship. So, now that we've reviewed the chapter and really drawn out what's communicating to us, I wanted to return to the scriptural passage and look at some of the significant themes that are presented here. There are a few of them. This chapter is, is very rich with ideas that recur both often in Exodus and often throughout all of scripture. So we're going to go back and look at, at three of them specifically. The three that we're going to be looking at are the theme of the serpent, the theme of the firstborn, and the theme of communication of blessings and curses by a mediator. So the first theme, the first theme is of the serpent. 
Serpents are a major theme throughout Scripture. On a personal note, many of you who know me said I'm not really scared of very much in the world, but I have a very real fear of snakes. I do. Even looking at a picture of one can get my heart racing a little bit. And to, to pull from Scripture, I'm a seed of a woman. So when God said there would be enmity between me and the serpent, he was not lying. Trust God there. It's very true. But serpents, back, back to the, the Scripture and not myself, serpents are viewed in Scripture as enemies of God and his people. For instance, Isaiah Chapter 27, verse 1, Isaiah begins a description here of how God redeems his people. And the very first thing he said in the description of the redemption, Isaiah says, In that day, the Lord with his, great, with his hand and great and strong word will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Dragon and serpent are often used interchangeably. Or in Revelation 12, John describes the beginnings of a battle that is taking place between the child of a woman and a great dragon. And the dragon, like I said, is often used interchangeably with the serpent. So you've got serpents in Isaiah, God redeeming people, he's going to strike the serpent. At the end of scripture, you've got this battle playing out between the seed of the woman and a great dragon, which also can be understood as a serpent. And this, of course, obviously, so you all know this, this is pointing back to Genesis 3 where the serpent deceives Eve and then is cursed by God, with the ultimate curse being the promise of the one who is coming from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And Paul reminds us of this in Romans 16, 20, where he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the close of Scripture describes the final battle with Satan like this in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then, in, then again in Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So you get this from beginning to end battling the serpent. God and the seed of the, seed of the woman are battling with Satan, the serpent. Why are they doing this? They're doing this to save his chosen people. So when Moses is commanded to grab the serpent by the tail and it becomes a staff again in his hand, this is an indication that God, who holds sovereignty over the serpent, is using Moses in his ongoing battle against the great dragon. Moses is going to win the battle against Satan's agent, Pharaoh, so the great dragon's agent, Pharaoh in this case, and God is going to win the war against the ancient serpent, Satan. And we have nothing to fear. Moses had nothing to fear because he grabs the serpent and it turns into a staff. He has nothing to fear here, and we have nothing to fear because we have the great serpent crusher on our side. We're going to win. It's guaranteed, declared by God. That was the theme of the serpent. Second theme, the theme of the firstborn. I told you we were coming back. We get a hint of the tenth plague and the Passover of this chapter. First in verse 23, it says, God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh that he will kill the firstborn son if Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And then comes that peculiar, if not strange, 
episode of verses 24 through 26. So regardless of some of the difficulties of this passage, one interesting thing is that the Hebrew word that is translated touched, at least here in the ESV, some other translations say strike or struck. So the Hebrew word that is translated touch when Zipporah touches Moses' feet with Gershom's foreskin is pronounced naga, which can mean strike, it can mean touch. The only other place that this is used, at least in the beginning of Exodus, is when God gives instructions regarding the Passover. The Israelites are commanded to, to put or to strike or to touch or to naga the, the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost whenever they're putting the blood over there. And so, obviously, the striking of Moses' feet was also a bloody act because it comes from a freshly circumcised son. So you have these, this is a very strange picture in our mind, but it's pointing to something else. It's the idea of the firstborn and the blood that is involved in the firstborn. So you got these back-to-back verses in Exodus 4 and verse 23 and then in verse 24 that are pointing towards the Passover and then the consecration of the firstborn or the death of the firstborn. One of those two things. The firstborn is either going to be set apart or he's going to die. And this theme is also played out through the rest of Scripture too. God, even in this chapter, calls Israel his firstborn son back in verse 22. The firstborn was always to be devoted to God under the laws of the Old Covenant. It's explained out throughout, even in the animals, but especially of the people. The firstborn son was devoted to God. And this obviously comes to its ultimate fulfillment with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, this is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Speaking of Jesus, obviously. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we get the firstborn, we get the blood here connected through Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And this firstborn child was not spared the blood of death. This passage in Colossians ends with that beautiful statement of reconciliation that we enjoy because he has made peace by the blood of his cross. Man, that's some good news. It's a wonderful message. This is the peace that the Israelites enjoyed, except the peace that they enjoyed was just a temporary peace because it was temporary because they keep having to sacrifice Passover lambs over and over because these Passover lambs were pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb. For the Israelites, the firstborn was spared, and they enjoyed temporary peace. They enjoyed temporary victory over their enemies. For the church, though, for the church, we enjoy the fullness of God's peace. 
and complete victory over Satan, that ancient serpent, that ancient dragon, because the firstborn was not spared. That is some good news. That is some good news for all of us. The firstborn was not spared. The blood was spilt on the cross, and that is amazing. So that's the firstborn. The third theme, the communication of blessings and curses by the mediator. Moses is functioning as a mouthpiece for God. He's the one that delivers the message from God to the recipient. Later, he's also going to function as a spokesman for the people to God as well. So from God to the people and later on from the people to God. Moses, in this role as a go-between or a mediator, gets to relay the great blessings that God has pronounced on his people. God is going to deliver his people from the oppressive hand of slavery under Pharaoh. And Moses gets to deliver this news. How elated the people are going to be. And they are. They are at the end of this verse. They're elated at the news. They believe and they worship. And Moses gets this privilege of delivering the good news to these people. You think about your own life, how fun it is to deliver good news to somebody, even if it's like, you know, minute, completely minute things to someone you care about. Think about the joy that Moses would have had here delivering the news that after 400 years, God is coming to save us from our slavery. The mediator gets to communicate the blessings. What a privilege. What a great privilege Moses has. But there was another side to the mediator too. The mediator, Moses, also had the responsibility to deliver curses also. In addition to delivering the good news to the Israelites, Moses has to deliver the curse to Pharaoh if he will not listen and if he will not repent. So the message is clear that Moses has to deliver. God is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if he refuses to let the people go. The mediator communicates the blessings to the people set apart for honorable use, and he also communicates the curses to the people that are set apart for dishonorable use. And this is developed all throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. It comes to a climax in Deuteronomy with half, you know, they're about to enter the promised land, and you get half of the tribes on one mountain shouting covenant blessings, and half of the tribes on another mountain, that's, they're facing each other, And this side is shouting covenant blessings, and this side is shouting covenant curses. So this idea of blessing and curses, this is all part of it. This is part of the role of the mediator. And this idea comes, and this theme comes to its final fulfillment in the final judgment of Jesus. And this final judgment is described in Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, this is how it describes it. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's pronouncing blessings and curses. And this is what he says in Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the uh, run from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Blessing. Skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for devils and angels, and his angels. The same idea here. 
Jesus, the ultimate mediator, looks to the people on his right and says, I give you God's blessings. I give you the blessings of the Father. And the people on the left, he says, I give you the curses of the Father. This theme is prominent here in Exodus. It's going to be prominent throughout the rest of our study of Exodus here. And this is the terrifying reality that's set before each of us. On that day, you will experience blessings or curses. Everyone here, everyone on the earth, everyone who has ever been on the earth will experience one or the others, one or the other. If you have cried out to God, if you love him with your whole heart, if you display the fruit of the love for your neighbor, if you have been set free from the slavery to your sin, you will enjoy indescribable covenant blessings. But if you reject the free offer of grace, there is no hope. You're going to be placed with the goats. You're going to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says here, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what awaits those who do not repent of their sins. But if you're here, if you have not done so, today is the day. Because there is a great mediator that is eager to pronounce blessings from the Father upon you. Not curses. But he will. And then one other interesting thing about this passage that really that, that was brought to my mind as I was reading this was, was how often there are protests from those that the, God calls, especially in the Old Testament. As I was reading this, I was thinking about some, some different Old Testament people that God had spoken to directly that, that resist initially at least. To be sure, not everyone in the Old Testament acted this way because we don't really get any indication that Joshua or Samuel or David or Abraham really expressed any sort of reluctance. They might have. We don't get that in Scripture. Um, But they seem to immediately do what God tells them to do. And many others are like like these. But Moses and many Old Testament saints are not quick, quick to accept God's call immediately. So just a few quick examples that immediately come to my mind are Gideon. So Gideon has his doubts, and he has this encounter with the angel of the Lord, and he starts to doubt, and Gideon even starts demanding miracles to get a confirmation here, miracle after miracle. Um, Esther, even though not called directly by God, there's all this, in God's providence, he puts before her something that she obviously needs to do, and go approach the king to save the people that she is over, but she's immediately, she's not willing to try and persuade the king, which prompts that really great reply from cousin Mordecai. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then immediately after that, Esther does what she needs to do. Isaiah, although not technically uh, arguing with God or ignoring God, Isaiah does recognize his own uncleanness, especially when he encounters God's holiness, right? And then he requests his mouth to be cleansed before he is sent. Jonah, (laughs) Jonah, Jonah hops on a boat and runs straight in the opposite direction of where God tells him to go tries to escape from God. And then even the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah is interesting because he actually has the exact same protest that Moses has. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 1, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. His excuse was that he's young. Moses didn't have that excuse, but the protest is the same. God, I don't know how to talk. I can't talk to the people. But the Lord issues the same reassurance to Jeremiah that he gives to Moses, minus the miracles. But he, he sends Jeremiah to speak only a message of judgment and curses, basically. Moses at least gets to communicate some blessings. So 
it was very interesting to me that you get all these Old Testament saints who were saints, obviously, but they were displayed all this reluctance even whenever being spoken to from God himself. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Moses and Gideon, Esther, and Jeremiah could use, could use a dose of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' commands to not be anxious. Maybe they need to listen to Pastor Thomas's sermons the past two, past two Sundays. But maybe they, maybe they should. Maybe, I don't know, they should not have been anxious, in our mind at least, whenever encountering God immediately. But in the New Testament, a peculiar thing happens over there. I couldn't, and I could be completely wrong on this, I couldn't think of a single instance of when someone encounters Jesus and then he calls them and they don't immediately respond. In most cases, they literally dropped whatever they're doing, whether it was fish or taxes or whatever, they literally drop whatever they're doing and start following him. Of course, yeah, there are some instances of people not accepting his sayings, and of course, many people rejected him outright, but the direct calls were always met with a direct response. I, I, don't, I don't know why exactly that would be, and I, you know that it definitely isn't necessarily due to a lack of faith on the part of the Old Testament saints, except for maybe Jonah. Jonah is a, a peculiar case. But the, I think the more likely explanation is that we as New Testament believers, we get to see the picture more clearly than the Old Testament saints did. You know, even They're talking face-to-face with God, but the ultimate redemptive plan is still kind of dark to them. We have the full revelation here of everything that God has given us to redeem His people. They saw all these types and shadows, but we've got the full revelation of Scripture and then this radiant display of Christ that they couldn't clearly see. Maybe the people that were there with Jesus could clearly see this. We can clearly see Jesus because we've got everything we need here. And we can clearly see the work that he has accomplished for us. And we can clearly see that Jesus requires immediate and total devotion. He deserves our all. And he deserves it without question and without reservation and without anxiety. And so now with that, we, find, we get to the specific application for the saints of our day and the saints in this room. Another thing that is repeated over and over and over in this chapter is that God keeps reassuring and reassuring and reassuring and reassuring Moses. No matter what Moses throws at him, God says, no, Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you. And so God provides for his saints. In this chapter, you see it. God provides the calling. God provides the gifts. God provides the material provisions. God provides the personal capacity. God provides the interactions and responses from other people. God provides vessels for honorable use, vessels for dishonorable use. God provides the deliverance for his people. And this is a corollary to God's command to not be anxious about the future. Because God is going to provide the resources that are needed for his people to succeed. And we didn't plan this tandem sermon on, on the provisions of God, especially in regards to anxiety or God's calling or anything like that. And God's providence has just happened to work out that way. God provided these sermons. But God is going to provide for you. If you're in his people, he is going to provide whatever resources you need to allow his church to succeed. And the people's response, just like it is in Exodus 4, is to believe and to worship, to trust him. Remember, in God's provision here, God calls Moses from the land of Midian. 
God gives Moses the gift of leadership. God gave Moses his voice and his staff. God gave Moses the desire to save the people. God gave Jethro the heart to let Moses go, and he gave Zipporah the initiative to save Moses' life, and Aaron the prompting to meet Moses by the mountain. God gave Pharaoh over to a hardened heart, and God is going to deliver his people from the hand of their enemies. And all of this is of God. God provides for his saints no matter what task is set before him, before them, even if it's delivering hundreds of thousands of people from slavery after 400 years. But this, this can be easy for us to see in hindsight, right? Oftentimes, as saints living today, we might feel as if God is absent, if God is not going to provide for whatever situation we're in. And that seems awfully close to that initial doubt, that initial lie from the serpent that he gave to Eve. Because he tells them that God, has God actually said, but the implication in that is that in this garden here, there's not everything. God has not provided everything. I'm telling you to resist those lies because God is near. God is providing for you the things that you need to accomplish his purposes, both in your own life and for the whole of the kingdom. So don't be dejected. Don't be downtrodden. Don't be obstinate. Don't look for a different path. Look to God. Trust in his divine apportionment because God provides for his saints. I'm going to end with a question then. Are you committed? Can you sing, take my life and let it be with a clear throat and with a full heart? Because during this exchange in Exodus 4, Moses actually, he couldn't sing the third verse. Because the third verse says, take my voice and let me, let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Moses couldn't sing that yet. What about you? Will you ever be only all for thee? Are you committed to the kingdom? Are you willing to give all of yourself to God without hesitation, without anxiety, and fully trust in Him to provide for you? I hope so. And if you do, I've got some good news for you. God provides for His saints, for the kingdom and for His glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of hope that you have given us in your word. We're thankful that you have not allowed us to wallow in our own self-pity or to wallow in doubt, but to, that you have told us that you are there for us, that you will provide for your people, that you will bring about the deliverance, that you will give them the gifts that are needed to succeed for the goodness of their own life and for the building up of your kingdom, Lord. We thank you for that. I pray for anyone here or anyone that is listening that experiencing this anxiety of whether you are there for them. Lord, release them of that. Show them that you are indeed good and that you are indeed a provider. That your providence, whether it seems bitter or whether it seems sweet, is there. That it is for them. That it is meant for them. That you are a personal God and that you care about your people. Lord, please forgive us of our sins of doubting, our sins of reluctance, and our sins of holding things back 
Let us be all for you, Lord. All for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.